Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, that your presence is right here with us. Father, as we prepare to open up your word, uh, we ask that you guide us, that you illumine our hearts and our minds, and that you allow us, Father, to uh, apply what we learn today. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. For millennia now, people have been fascinated with Jesus. Whether friend or foe, skeptic or follower, most people have at some time or another been impacted by his words. Jesus' words and actions have inspired, challenged, anger, and even confused us. So much so that many have written books in order to explain what they thing Jesus really said, or what he meant. One such book is Jesus Behaving Badly, written by evangelical scholar Mark Strauss. His purpose for writing this book is to provide a clear and compelling portrait of Jesus in his own terms and historical context. He guides the reader through a series of biblical passages to explore questions such as, Was Jesus a revolutionary or a pacifist? Was Jesus anti-family or family-friendly? He tries to clarify Jesus' words and actions for today's audience as we tend to sometimes read Jesus out of context. The goal is to understand Jesus more. Although today's passage does not Discuss, it's, it's not discussed in, Mike, in Mark Strauss's book. Understanding Jesus is an important theme for those involved here. We see that while the invalid is confused about Jesus' identity, the Jewish leaders understood Jesus, misunderstood Jesus' actions. The structure of John 5, 1 through 18 is as follows. We'll see that in verses 1 through 9, Jesus takes the initiative to heal a man. Then, in verses 9 through 13, we'll see that a Sabbath controversy ensues. And finally, we'll see in verses 14 through 18 that the Jewish leaders are angry at Jesus and resolve to kill him. So so now we come to our first point, verses 1 through 9 where Jesus takes the initiative to heal a man. We read in verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman, and after he healed the official son, after these events, there was a feast, a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John doesn't tell us, uh, which, which feast he is referring to, he does not specify. It seems that John's purpose in mentioning this, this uh, feast is to provide the reason why Jesus was in Jerusalem. But even though he doesn't provide any details about the feast, he does provide quite a bit of detail about the setting where this sign took place. That's why John calls Jesus' miracles. Signs. Signs give information. They teach us an aspect 
of who Jesus is. We read in verses 2 and 3, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. John gives the exact location where this miracle took place, near a pool by the sheep gate. Jerusalem had several gates in its wall. We read about them in chapters 3 and 12 of the book of Nehemiah. The sheep gate was a small entrance to the city in the northeast segment of the wall near the temple. Apparently, sheep for temple sacrifice entered through this gate. Near the sheep gate, there was a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic. During the 1800s, archaeologists discovered a pool in Jerusalem that fits not only the location, but also the description that John provides. This site has twin pools surrounded by four colonnades or porticos and one porch down the middle separating the pools. It is this site that most scholars today identify as the Pool of Bethesda. In these colonnades or covered walkways, many invalids would gather, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So you can imagine the, this place where probably hundreds of needy people would assemble, all hoping to find a solution to their own physical disability. Consumed with their own infirmities, all crowded around this pool. The pool, they thought, was the only solution to their problems. There was no hospitals, no walking clinics, no government assistant, assistance. They had, the, they had no means to pay for someone to care for them. They couldn't provide for their families if they had them or for themselves. Begging was their only recourse. In a culture of honor and shame, this was a helpless situation. Later on in John 9, when Jesus and his disciples meet a blind man, the disciples ask whether it was his own sin or his parents' sin who caused him to have such an affliction. That was a common assumption. Those who suffer these kinds of difficulties must deserve it somehow. That is likely what most people thought about all the, all the invalids gathered at the pool of Bethesda. Most people would have avoided them. Unfortunately, that mindset still characterizes much of our, of our worst response to such need. Years ago, I used to work at Boston, Boston City Hospital, now known as Boston Medical Center. As I made my way to work, I would see groups of homeless men and women close to the hospital's main entrance. They came to beg to those who made their way into work. Some of them were just lying on the ground. Some smelled like alcohol. Some looked like they had not showered in weeks. All looked malnourished and unkept. Most of those who saw them recoiled at their sight. It didn't seem that anyone cared for them. What John is describing in these verses is more dire. It is sadder. 
They, they, they too are despised, rejected, and forgotten by society. No one is coming to help them. Let me take a moment to explain something that you've probably already seen. Uh, if you own a modern translation, you probably noticed during the reading of verse 4, during the reading of the passage, that verse 4 is missing from your Bibles. The great majority of, of our modern translations correctly omit uh, the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 because these are not present in the earliest and best manuscripts. Again, verse 3 reads, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The portion not included adds, Waiting for the moving of the water. In verse 4, For an angel of the Lord went down and stirred up the water at certain times. Whoever first stepped in after the stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease, disease which he suffered. This is basically an explanation of how the waters were stirred up in verse 7. The, this, was pro, uh, this was probably written as a marginal note on an older manuscript, and eventually a copyist added, added it to the text. There is evidence that not every clause was introduced at the same time. This is probably what the locals believed. Our modern, our modern Bibles have the correct reading. Our Bibles are trustworthy. If you have any question, feel free to contact me and we can discuss it. Although there were no cameras in John's time, he manages to zoom in from the, Jerusalem, from the festivities in Jerusalem to the crowd of invalids to a single man. He does this in order to focus on him and describe, and describe the man's physical condition. He had been an invalid for 38 years. He's been disabled for 38 years. From what transpires next, he's probably paralyzed, lame, or, suff or suffers from, from chronic weakness. We don't know his name, his age, or whether he was born disabled or became disabled at some later time in his life. But considering that the average lifespan of a person in Jesus' time was about 40 years, we can assume that this man has suffered long. To this particular man, at this particular time, with this particular need, Jesus comes. No one else came. The man himself says that there is no one to help him. He has been alone, avoided, and isolated. But now Jesus has come. Let me encourage you. You might, be, uh, you might be going through a difficult time. Maybe you lost your job and you're having financial difficulties. Maybe you are feeling lonely and isolated. Maybe like the invalid, you are feeling sick. But know that Jesus cares for you. Know that he loves you. He knows every detail of your life. He knows your longings, your fears, and your, and your frustrations. He knows you like no one else does because he created you. The psalmist says, for you form me, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Like the homeless men and women I I discussed earlier, like the disabled man in this story, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. So Jesus comes to this man deliberately, purposefully. He's not strolling around and, and happens to bump into him. Just as he intentionally decided to meet the Samaritan woman at the well, so he deliberately meets this man. Jesus came with a purpose in mind. He knows the invalid has been in this condition for a long time. He takes pity on this man and wants to heal him. So he asks him, do you want to be healed? Jesus' question is intriguing. I think Jesus wants the man to think about and express the obstacles that prevent him from getting healed. Jesus will demonstrate that there is no obstacle that will prevent him from healing this man. The man doesn't really answer Jesus' question directly. Instead, instead of answering, yes, I want to be healed, the, invalid ans- the invalid's answer reveals his predicament. Verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put, to put me into, into the pool when the water is stirred up. This man believed what is probably a, a commonly held view that the first and only the first person to get into the water while it was stirred up could be healed. The second part of the answer gives Jesus the reason why up to this point he never got into the pool first. While I am going, another steps down before me. Maybe God was indeed healing sick people in this place. But I am not so sure. I am not convinced. The problem I can't surpass is that I don't recall, I don't, I don't recall ever reading a passage in the, in the Bible where in order for someone to get healed, he has to compete more than that. He has to raise another so that only one of them would be healed. I think, there is a, I think this is a pagan mindset, a myth. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the man's complaint. He simply speaks the word and the man is healed. He gives three short but decisive commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once, instantly, immediately, the man was healed. Jesus spoke, he commanded this man's body, and it obeyed. Last year, one of my daughters, Adriana, um, she severely sprained one of her ankles. And we ended up taking her to the podiatrist uh, who ordered x-rays. Thankfully, thank God the uh, x-rays came out negative. But he, he said that she needed to have physical therapy in order to heal completely. He also mentioned that her ankle, that ankles normally take 6 to 12 months to heal completely. Jesus speaks to this man. He orders a command and the, man, and the man's lifeless legs obey immediately. There's no hesitation. There's no stumbling. There's no 6 to 12 months. 
Just as Jesus spoke the word to the for the centurion's son to be healed, so Jesus speaks to this man, and his body responds immediately. That's the, the awesome, unparalleled power of Jesus' words. He recreates. He gives life to the man's dead lower body. In one instant, in one instant, the now healed man received what he has been waiting for 38 years. Except that the source of his healing is not the pool. It's not the pool that he's been trying to get into, but a man who has approached him out of the blue asking if he wanted to be healed. Some of you might wonder, if Jesus, Jesus' power if Jesus has power to heal, and there, there was a multitude of invalids in need of healing, why didn't he heal everyone? Or as the late atheist Christopher Hitchens put it in his book, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. He's referring to Jesus' miraculous healing of a blind man, but it still applies. Hitchens Hitchin uh, wrote this. If Jesus could heal a blind person he happened to meet, why not heal blindness? But it isn't just Christians and unbelievers like Hitchens who seem to misunderstand Jesus' purpose and mission. Those closer to him, his disciples, also misunderstood him. For example, in Luke 4, Jesus heals, heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law and others with various diseases. Then we read in verses 42 and 43. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The parallel passage in Mark 1 specifies that Simon Peter and probably the other disciples were the ones to whom Jesus was speaking. So although miraculous healing is an aspect of, of, of Messiah's mission, his priority was to preach the gospel. We should pray for the sick, for the sick, we should pray for miraculous healings. But as someone said, each healing is a sign of the ultimate healing, that is salvation, that he will accomplish on the cross. The miracles of Jesus are a yellow brick road that leads us to the fulfillment of salvation via the atoning death and resurrection of the Christ. Jesus heals this man, but this healing is just a means to an end. Jesus heals him so that people realize that he is the healer we're looking for, the one we're yearning for, so that we see that he's the one with the power to make things right and restore what's broken. He healed the man. The healed man had one mission in life, to find healing at the pool. Physical healing was so important to him that he wasn't able to look past that. Suddenly, uh, he had had his miracle and never looked back. 
In, in his defense, we do read in verse 13 that after the miracle, Jesus withdrew due to the crowd. However, we have to look at the, at the way that John portrays the man in the passage and realize that although Jesus has healed him, the man doesn't show any evidence of a transformed life. John mentions none of that. There's no mention of the man's faith, no praise to God. He doesn't, say, he doesn't even say thank you. No effort whatsoever to connect with Jesus. He doesn't trust in Jesus and thus never receives, never becomes a follower. No wonder later on when the Jewish leaders asked him who had, who had commanded him to take up his bed and walk, he doesn't know who Jesus was. He got up, took up his bed, and walked away, never to look back. Now, after this sign, shouldn't we all be celebrating? Shouldn't we all be filled with happiness? Instead, we learn in verses 9 through 13 that a Sabbath controversy ensued. Look with me at, this, at the second part of verse 9. Now, that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Most of us here at Westgate are Gentiles. We're not of Jewish background. We are far removed from the events described here and don't fully understand the significance of what's taken place. But if you were a modern-day Orthodox Jew, or better yet, if you were a member of the first audience to whom John wrote and heard this, your reaction would be much more different. Imagine a first-century Jewish person driving down the Mass Pike, listening to the, this biblical story, and he hears the narrator said, say, Now, that day was a Sabbath. Right away, his eyes would get wide open, his heart would start pumping blood as fast as, uh, at a fast rate, and he would slam the brakes in disbelief. You could hear the tires screeching and would observe the skid marks. They'd think, oh no, this is going to get ugly. You see, God had commanded the Israelites to do no work on the Sabbath on the seventh day of a seven-day week. It was supposed to be a reminder to God's people that God himself had also rested after, after the completion of, the creating, of his creating work. The Sabbath was supposed to be a time of great joy. This is how Isaiah puts it. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or, speak idle, or speaking idle words, then, will, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in, in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But Jesus grew up in a religious climate in which the Sabbath was all but joy in the Lord. 
It had become a burden to all people. The Jewish leader had added their own words to God's command on Exodus 20. Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And he, on it you shall not do any work. But we must ask, what does God mean by work? In the law, work in the law, work means to carry out one's usual occupation, one's customary employment. So your work is to be a farmer, a scribe, a teacher, a school bus driver, a lawyer. That's what the law is referring to when it prohibits one from doing work. The Jewish leaders do not object to the miraculous healing as they often do in the synoptic gospels, but they object to the fact that the healed man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. In their view, he was, he was doing work that the law deemed unlawful, unlawful, not permissible. The reason is that according to Jewish tradition or the oral law, the man was violating a code that prohibited the carrying of an object from one place to another. Notice that I said, according to Jewish tradition. There was a body of Jewish teaching called the Mishnah, in which the rabbis decided that they wanted to define what worked on, work on the Sabbath meant. So in their spare time, they came up with 39 types of work forbidden on the Sabbath. 39. One of them said that carrying an object more than a certain distance was technically work. They were stacking man's made laws onto God's holy word. The question is was Jesus aware of these non biblical regulations? And had he healed the invalid and commanded him to carry his bed in order to challenge the religious authorities? Absolutely. In fact, this was a mark of, of Jesus' ministry. We see him doing the same thing later on on chapter 9 as he heals a blind man on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders reasoned, reasoned that by following the letter of the law, one would earn salvation and sought to stop anyone who opposed their views. This is why they questioned the healed man as he carried his bed. The man, fearing, fearing the wrath of his questioners, blames the healer, blamed his healer for, for his infraction. Verse 11. The man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. Who is he? They demanded. But the healed man did not know who it was, that it was Jesus, who had, because Jesus had withdrawn. So far, we've seen that Jesus, in his mercy, heals a man who wasn't even looking for him. Jesus, Jesus shows his compassion and mercy towards this man. Then, surprisingly, this happiness, this happy occasion turns into a Sabbath controversy. 
The Jewish leaders accused the man of breaking the Sabbath since he was carrying a mat on that day. Now we'll see that Jesus comes back in, uh, in, the, in the scene and he's basically handed over to the Jewish leaders by the man he just healed. Now the tension rises even more as Jesus reveals himself in a new way, Son of God. For this, the Jews, the Jewish leaders seek to kill him. Who could be more dangerous than the one who's breaking the Sabbath? The one who commanded this man to break the Sabbath. So they go after Jesus. However, Jesus was not done with this man. Sometime later, he finds the healed man in the temple precinct. We don't know exactly how much time elapsed. This is just south of the uh, pool. This time Jesus comes with a warning for him. Verse 14. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is one of those confounding Bible verses. Is Jesus saying that the man's disability was the result of his sinful life? For us to say that the man's condition is the result of a specific sin, John would have to be explicit and make, connection, make a connection between the man's sin and his disability. Why? Because as the, as the narrative continues, we see that the, that's exactly what Jesus' disciples asked when they encountered the blind, blind man in chapter 9. In that case, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He suffered this, this affliction because of a divine purpose, not because of any wrongdoing anyone had committed. This is an important precedent for all, of, for, for all of our understanding of suffering and our understanding of the Gospel of John. However, John is not explicit in making that connection. He never says, you've been suffering because of your sin. So I believe that that's a false assumption. This is what I think we can say. Some of our suffering happens because God is working in us to bring about an occasion for us to behold his glory. And God uses all of our suffering to accomplish that. But some hardship, some hardship we experience in life is hardship that we invite into our own life. If I get drunk and hit a tree and injure myself and lose my license, that's the result of my stupidity. I brought, it to, I brought it into my own life. Both things are real. The suffering we invite and the one that comes into our lives as a result, the, as the result of living in a fallen world. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's the worst thing that can happen to the man? Probably the only worst thing Jesus is alluding to is judgment day, hell. So Jesus calls him to repentance. Jesus is saying, you need to consider how things can get for the worse in your life, worse than they were before. 
This is what Jesus is not saying. If you stop sinning, you can get saved. That's not the gospel he preaches. That's not what we've seen so far in this gospel. But he's calling the man, he's calling the healed man to obedience. But the man seems to get offended and he runs to the Jewish leaders and basically hands Jesus over to them. This is evidence that the man was not saved. He doesn't follow Jesus. Instead, he exits the stage never to be seen again. Now the Jewish leaders haven't identified Jesus, and a confrontation leads them to persecute him. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus continues to push. He continues to apply pressure. He goes from performing a miracle on the Sabbath to commanding a man to break the Sabbath to laying, to laying claim of a divine prerogative, working on the Sabbath, to claiming a special relationship with God, divine sonship. No Jewish person on his right mind would dare make the first claim, never mind the second. The result? The religious leaders apparently wanted to kill him before, but now they really, really want to kill him. This will play out not only in the rest of this chapter, but also in the rest of the gospel. Ironically, the religious leaders do not know that Jesus will accomplish his mission by dying on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's life-giving son died and rose from the day to make a way to the Father. We place our hope only in Jesus for he has triumphed on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the good news and our only hope for salvation. So what do we learn from this passage? What's the big idea? We learn that people then and people now look to, look to hope and healing in the wrong places. Let me repeat that. People then and people now look for hope and healing in the wrong places. Instead of, instead of hoping in God's provision his son Jesus, both the, the healed man and the Jewish leaders are putting the hope in insufficient things. The religious leaders are trusting the law, which God gave them for their good, but which cannot save, while the invalid is trusting in the miraculous healing he hopes the pool will provide. It certainly isn't wrong to hope for a miracle. The man in this the man is the recipient of a miracle in this passage. But just as the law cannot save, neither can a miraculous healing. Both are too small. Only the one who gives the law can save. Only the one with power to perform miracles can save. The signs and the law are supposed to point us to Jesus. But it seems that both parties are stopping 
one step short of what, of what these things are intended to drive us toward. They are insufficient. They are in all what God has offered, nor what God has given. We often set our hopes, look for our joy in things that are insufficient. This might not be bad sometimes, bad things sometimes, but sometimes they are. They don't offer healing and the justification and restoration that we receive in Christ. They are shadows of that. The whole world is facing a crisis, and we are struggling to solve it. We should wear a mask. We should support uh, people who work in healthcare. We should be funding research to develop a vaccine. We should follow social distancing guidelines. But we should not place our ultimate hope on that. We shouldn't assume that if we develop a vaccine for COVID-19, that we shouldn't worry about that anymore. If that's the case, when we're setting our hopes on something, if that's the case, then we're setting our hopes on something that's too small. Our ultimate hope should be on something that cures all disease in Christ. As many of you know, I am a medical worker. When this pandemic hit, uh, in, in Mass- hit Massachusetts, I was feeling quite stressed out, even fearful, as I have, uh, I have to scan COVID-positive uh, patients. I was quite meticulous, meticulous um, putting on my PPE, my personal protective equipment. But I was very anxious as I wondered if the mask, gown, and face shield would really protect me. I hope so, but was coming home stressed and tired. One, no- one night, Andrea, my wife, um, she suggested that we ask Jesus to protect us, to protect our family, to protect me at work, and protect my coworkers, even if the PPE didn't work. I decided I was going to give all my anxiety all my fears to Jesus. I decided that the personal protection equipment was necessary, but that I needed to place my complete hope and trust in Jesus instead. My anxiety level has been reduced greatly. But this has also been a process. It's something that I've had to remind myself almost every day, that I should trust not only So I should trust Jesus not only for my health, but for every aspect of my life. Jesus and Jesus only. I hope you can also do the same. When we don't understand what Jesus is doing, when we often think that he's behaving badly. We want him to do what we have what we have in mind, what we desire. But he's not submitting his will to us. We are, we must submit our wills to him. We need to try to understand him and follow him. He has sought us out in our pain and distress and made lifetimes of hardship, unfulfilled dreams, and global pandemics. He has come with healing in his hands, 
but for far more than our physical pain. He has come to give us entirely new lives in him, free from the brokenness of this world. Let us set our hope in him, the one who gave his life to make us whole again. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you because you, Jesus, are our only true hope. The one who gave his life, hope for salvation, hope for a daily living. Father, help us uh, trust you in all things. Help us stay focused in you instead of looking at our circumstances. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us. In your name we pray. Amen.